0: Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapter 2, and we'll commence our reading there at verse 1. So hear now, once more, the infallible, the inerrant word of our God. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east of Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these words, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come. And worship him also. And when they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeareth to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt. And be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. And was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son." Thus far, the reading of God's word, and may he bless it to our hearing this morning. In his first epistle to Timothy, the apostle tells us, of course, great is the mystery of godliness. And then he tells us precisely what mystery he has in view. As he writes, as the Spirit's penman, he tells us that the mystery that he has in view is nothing less than the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is, as the apostle would have us see it, it is the foundation of all piety. It is really the nexus for all Christianity. The person and work of Jesus Christ is that foundation. And beloved, perhaps it's not unknown to any of us, but one of the criticisms that is often lodged against the Reformed tradition is that in some sense we neglect that foundation. We are a people, of course, who spend much time and think deeply in the prophets and in the epistles, but perhaps not so much in the Gospels, not so much in this record of Christ in the days of his public ministry, not so much Christ in the days of his flesh. And while that criticism is often lodged without good warrant, it is necessary that we take up the Gospels as precious things as holding out to us conspicuously the glory of our God as revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. And beloved, when we come to the Gospel account this morning, that's precisely how we should approach the Gospels. It presents to us in a clear way, in a powerful way, the very foundation of what it is to be in Christ and to be conformed into his likeness. If we approach a text like that, if we approach our text this morning in such a way, well then, beloved, this morning we have a text that is really the foundation for how you and I should live today, and for Christ's sake. As we look at this text, you'll notice, beloved, that this is, of course, holding out to us Christ in his infancy. We have a record of Christ, of course, in Luke's Gospel, that takes us up to that moment, the 40 days after his birth, in which he's circumcised and solemnly presented in the temple. But as we looked at now three weeks ago, Matthew's gospel takes us sometime afterward back to Bethlehem, takes us to Christ as he's yet in the city of David, and takes us to Christ as wise men, magi from the east are seeking him. Now, Beloved, you remember that this text holds out to us then some very strange paradoxes. First of all, in the first several verses of Matthew 2, you have Christ sought, but not by the Jews. You have Christ sought by Gentiles, by men who themselves were from the East and so far removed from the light of Scripture that Israel peculiarly enjoyed under the Old covenant. You had men here who were seeking Christ, and they had extraordinary revelation given to them. They had the star that indicated Christ, but when they come to Jerusalem, they know not even where to find Him. The star, as it were, seems to be a variably appearance. It seems as though it had disappeared, and they had nothing. They had no knowledge of the Word of God with regard to where He was to be born, and so they go to the scribes, the chief priests, first to Herod. As they ask them where Christ would be found, they meet fear and trembling. It's a striking paradox, isn't it? These ones who were estranged from the light of God's word, when they would find Christ, find those who enjoyed the radiance of the scriptures for so long, trembling, fearful that Christ might come. But then, of course, you have not just the case of the scribes and the Pharisees, but you have, of course, the contrast between Herod and the Magi themselves. You have Herod here dissembling. Herod pretending as though he would worship Christ, when in fact he intended only to destroy him. But then you have the Magi. The Magi, as you come to the 10th verse, are rejoicing at whatever Ever, ever tool may be used by God to draw them to Christ. Herod despises Christ. These magi rejoice in whatever the Lord may use to draw them to his side. These are paradoxes, but they're paradoxes that really set up for us our text this morning. As we look at verses 11 to 15, everything that we have encountered thus far really continues into the text. But, but as we look at these verses, these four verses this morning, you'll see that in many ways, the fruition of these sentiments and dispositions, the, the fullness of malice on the one hand and of fidelity on the other, are come, they come to the fore. I want you to notice as you come to verse 11, that you have really the expression of this love that the Magi have for Christ. When they were come into the house, the text tells us, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. The word worship there is the word in the Greek, kuneo. You can translate it literally to kiss. The idea there is the same idea that you and I would have, in our minds, when we would think of one doing obeisance to an earthly king. You would have somebody coming and kissing the signet ring of a lord. That's the idea. These men from the east, these wise men, as soon as they see Christ, who by the way is still in his infancy, still certainly in his minority, still nurtured, by Mary, still under the protection of Joseph, when they see this Christ, they fall down and they do obeisance. They acknowledge him as their Lord. That's really what the act indicates it is an acknowledgement of sovereignty. And then what's striking is, as Matthew conveys this, it comes to us in the original as much as it does in the English, there's a sense of immediacy to this act. As soon as they see the child, as soon as they see him here, in Bethlehem, in a place that was by no means regarded as royal lodging, when they see him here, immediately they fall and they worship And beloved, what you see then here is that Christ, even in his humiliation, even even now, as it were, covered with a veil really, really thick and powerful so that the glory of Christ seems to be eclipsed. Even then, Christ remains an object of worship. This the wise men acknowledge. But then, of course, as you come through our text, you come from the presentation of these gifts to those two dreams that really form the, the body of this passage. You have, first of all, the dream that is given to the Magi, uh, being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod. They departed into their own country another way. Now, what's striking about this, of course, is that behind both dreams, both that given to the Magi and also that given to Joseph, the overarching theme is that these are miraculous interventions by God to secure the preservation of Christ. Of course, we understand that. A simple reading of the text indicates as much. Uh, but it's certainly w- worth noting as well that as the Lord reveals these things to the Magi, first of all, he is undoing, as it were, Herod's deception. These magi were going to go back to Herod. Apparently Herod had made so well a case, had had presented his overtures of interest in, in Christ so convincingly that the dream was necessary. This miraculous intervention was needed. And so here the Lord really shows to them very pointedly, Herod had deceived them. And also strikingly, isn't it, they do not return to Jerusalem they don't return to Jerusalem so as to expose where Christ might be found, but, but perhaps had they returned to Jerusalem and they had uncovered Herod's real intentions, if they did not disclose where Christ was to be found, it would, of course, end very badly for them. The Lord is not only, of course, preserving Christ, but it's right for us to see here that he is dealing graciously with the Magi themselves. But then secondly, we come to that, to that other dream, that of Joseph, in which, we're, in which he is told, take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt. And the reason is given, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. What's striking is this is the second dream that Joseph has. The first dream takes place in Matthew 1. But Again, noting that these dreams set before us the idea that God is miraculously intervening to preserve Christ from Herod's malice. There is another aspect to this dream that we shouldn't miss either. What the Lord is saying to Joseph pointedly is that you must go into exile as well. Herod's malice for Christ will have implications for the whole family. You and Mary and Christ must go. Herod's hatred will make you an exile as well. Which shows us, of course, then, the profundity of what follows. Here you have Joseph obeying, willingly for Christ's sake to go into exile with his wife. There, until the death of Herod, says the dream. And why? Matthew tells us why this exile must take place. He tells us that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, out of Egypt have I called my son. Here you have a record, of course, of Joseph's obedience, his willingness to enter into exile for Christ's sake. But you have also as it were, a higher interpretation of the whole. Here, the inspired historian comes and tells us that not only is this a case of of the family being made refugees, not only is this a, a simple moment, as it were, born out of the exigencies of the first century context in which they found themselves. This was fulfillment of prophecy. Here, the Lord was making good on the word that he had given to his church centuries before. Now what do we make of this? Well, beloved, first of all, and we can't miss this, can we? In these four verses, you have a paradigm that will follow us all throughout the Gospels. Here you have, in verse 11, a wonderful picture of glory. Here you have Christ standing in his minority, and yet he's acknowledged to be king. And you see how he's acknowledged. These men of the east, they come and they bear these precious gifts. These gifts that are really the highest products of their own lands. And they lay them before Christ, quite willingly, acknowledging as they worship Him, that He is worthy of this and so much more. It's a token, it's a token of acknowledgement. No one else, no one else seems to have noticed. But these wise men know who dwells in Bethlehem. They know the majesty of the one before whom they stand. And this they acknowledge willingly. But beloved, note what follows these tokens of glory that you have, these acknowledgments that we find, they're quickly followed by deep, by incredible suffering. Christ, in his humiliation, would be acknowledged time and time again to be what he always was, the Son of God, the Redeemer of his people. Worthy of all praise, honor, and glory. But in the days of his flesh, those acknowledgments were few. They were small. And they were always followed by deep suffering. Beloved, even in his infancy, he was made a man of sorrows. He may be given great gifts from the East. But immediately thereafter, he's made a refugee, is sent into exile. This is how your Christ walked the earth. But secondly, beloved, there is a point of emphasis that we can't miss. Not only is it the case that we have tokens of glory and humiliation in the text, but there is something that is striking. It really is the last verse of our text this morning. It's the significance of the exile itself. Why is this so important? Of course, Matthew's gospel is the only gospel that gives us some account of his removal to Egypt. And so what is the significance of his being made a refugee? Well, perhaps as we look at the 15th verse, the solution comes by looking directly at Hosea 11, the prophecy from which um, Matthew takes his statement about fulfillment. In Hosea 11, we're told just these very words. Out of Egypt have I called my son. But in one sense, looking at these two texts on their own don't really give us an answer to the question of significance. Uh, And for several reasons. Uh, First of all, note the difficulty of the analogy. As you look at this text, one could simply say, well, Matthew is saying that it was an analogy of sorts. Christ's removal into Egypt is, is like Israel of old going into Egypt themselves. Well, what's striking is, the Gospel writer tells us it's not an analogy that he has in view. He's not simply drawing a comparison. The text is very clear. Matthew, Matthew 2.15, he tells us, that it might be fulfilled. This is not analogy, according to Matthew. This is fulfillment. And the difficulty that arises from that then is also here that Matthew cites a prophecy that does not tell us about Christ's removal to Egypt, but his being drawn from it. Uh, note that. Uh, that also is a complexity to the text. The text itself says this Removal to Egypt fulfills a text that actually refers to Christ being drawn from it. But then, perhaps most vexing, is the question of the relationship between the events that you have in Matthew 11, sorry, Matthew 2, and the idea, the drama that Hosea has in view in Hosea 11. In other words, what correspondence is there between the prophet and his focus? and this moment in the life of Christ. If you read Hosea 11, if you read the first verse, commentators right across the board will tell you, Hosea 11.1 is speaking about Israel's experience in Egypt. Israel's experience prior to the Exodus. To a man. That is how we are to understand Hosea. But then when we come to Matthew 2, Matthew says, this thing, Hosea is referring to, this Egyptian exile that Israel suffered, somehow there is a correspondence between that moment and the moment that I'm now writing of, Christ's removal to Egypt. Now if those are the complexities, of course the question is, what is the solution? What relationship does Matthew 2 and Hosea 11 share? Now, as we look at this text well, there are so many fanciful kinds of interpretations that have been given to try to unsolve this uh, unravel rather this gordian knot but we are helped when we remember how the scriptures speak of Egypt e- you remember that Egypt and the scriptures stand of course as a historical political nation she is of course A nation that that had a history in the scriptures, that, that was of course possessed of all of the accoutrements that a nation might have. But it was a nation that also acquired, both in the Exodus and also throughout the prophets, a symbolic status as well. I mean, you know how the scriptures refer to Egypt, don't you? It is often called, even in the Decalogue itself, even in the Ten Commandments, we're told that Egypt is the house of bondage. Eleven times right throughout the Scriptures, this is how the prophets, how the men of God refer to this country. It is the house of bondage. Elsewhere, the prophets also refer to this as the iron furnace. Beloved, in the Scriptures, Egypt stands for us over and over again as a symbol Yes, as a real nation, but as a symbol of the church under affliction, under duress, in almost unsurvivable conditions. This is Egypt. Now, beloved, as you look at this text, it begs the question, well, then why was Christ sent to this place that was the house of bondage? The iron furnace? The answer is given, I think, very helpfully by Kelvin. Christ cannot be separated from his church. Whatever happened formerly in the church ought at length to be fulfilled in the head. Why did Christ go to the house of bondage? Why did he enter in? To the iron furnace. Why was he made an exile. Cut off from the land of promise. And cut off for a time. Even from the temple of God. Why? Because Christ the head. Will be conformed. To the experience of his church. Christ must enter like sufferings. As the head. That his people themselves endure. And beloved, as we look at this text, and we'll certainly take this theme up more toward the end of our time, what this text of Scripture holds out to us in these four verses is a savory doctrine, but it's one that we cannot cannot emphasize enough. When we look at the Gospels, here we see that in his humiliation, Christ took upon himself the lowliness of his people. In his humiliation, Christ took upon himself the lowliness of his people. I want us to see this as Christ, first of all, is recognized. Secondly, as he is reviled. And finally, as he is made a refugee. And so take, first of all, Christ as he is recognized. The recognition comes to us, as we have already said in the 11th verse, when they, that is the wise men, saw the young child with Mary, his mother, they fell down and worshipped him. They presented unto him gifts. Uh, now, the significance of the gifts is often attributed to three different kinds of recognition that are given. Uh, the myrrh standing there for Christ's burial, the frankincense for his kingship, the gold as well. Uh, the reality is, is that these three gifts do not in any sense necessarily imply any of those particular ideas. But the gifts do tell us something. They tell us that these men would give the greatest and the finest things from the East to Christ. This is not a recognition of Christ's, the zenith of Christ's humiliation. This is an acknowledgement of Christ's majesty. All three of these gifts are tokens of his royalty, Tokens of the glory of his person. Now, what we are taught here very pointedly is that in his humiliation, Christ remained the majestic Son of God. He was worthy of such honor. Worthy of such worship. Worthy of such adoration. And friend, he remained this even as the prophet tells us that in His humiliation He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see Him, there is no beauty that we should desire Him. This majesty remains even as Christ Himself says, I am a worm and no man. You see, what the text is teaching us is, is that by the Spirit of God working men could recognize that even in this veil of humiliation, even in this moment when He takes upon Himself the form of a servant, the majesty of Christ remains. The glory of Christ still is undiminished. And when we see in this text these men recognizing as much, we need to see there that this is not so much commending the piety of these men as it is recognizing a reality about Christ. He remains, He remains worthy of all honor, love, and glory. Even if so few recognize it. Even if in His state of humiliation, so few see it. You see, beloved, this is something that believers recognized throughout Christ's life on earth. John says it pointedly. We beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. We beheld it, said John. But he tells us that immediately after he says that Christ came to his own and his own received him not. There were some who, like the wise men in our text, recognized the glory of His person, and yet there were others who could walk around Him, who could even live in the same house as Himself, and yet they could not see it. Some would acknowledge His worthiness. Some would be brought to adoration. But even some closest to Him would fail to see it. You see, beloved... As we think of this, we should think of this as it respects Christ's glory both essentially and personally, and as it concerns Christ, glorious in his office. Christ prays, Glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. He acknowledges personally and eternally, worthy of all glory, He's worthy of such adoration. He is, of course, the image of the invisible God. All things were created by Him and for Him and is before all things and by Him all things consist. And so, beloved, when we see men in the Scriptures adoring Christ, it's perfectly right for us to see that they're simply saying this, that He must be blessed who comes In the name of the Lord. That is, in the Lord's name. In the Lord Jehovah. As the one who is the image of the invisible God. He never ceased then to be what he was. Even if he became. Even if he became what he was once not. He remained. He remained personally. The majestic son of God. Even if in his humiliation. He took on the form of a servant he never had before. But there's a second aspect that we can think of this majesty. We can see this also as it respects his office. You'll notice here that the apostles are very clear. Take Paul. God commanded the light to shine out of darkness to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. As Christ is possessed of this office, the part, the purpose of this office, as He is Messiah, is to set before the world the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. It's a glorious office then. It's an office that is necessarily glorious that Christ holds. And Christ Himself says He has accomplished this in the days of His flesh. I have glorified Thee on the earth. It's a staggering statement, isn't it? I have fulfilled the ends of this office. I have indeed glorified Thee on the earth. And even though Christ, in a sense, is speaking as though the cross and the resurrection have already occurred, it's nevertheless true. In His office, as He is setting before the world the glory of God, Christ indeed has this glorious office and has fulfilled it. You see, friend... There are implications from this that we can't miss that have direct bearing on our text this morning. If Christ is personally glorious and holds and holds rightly this glorious office, then of course men must do what we see these magi doing in our text. I mean, take, of course, two Psalms that we know well. Take Psalm 2. I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me. Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. And the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. And immediately thereafter, the kings of the earth, called to be wise, called to be instructed, are called to kiss the son. To do the very thing you see these men doing here. Beloved what you see in this text. Are men who are complying. With the gospel call. To take hold of Christ as he is the majestic son of God. As he is Zion's king. They even acknowledge him that earlier in the text. And they recognize that if he is so they must do obeisance. They must adore him. And beloved, then what you also see here too is that these men saw that this was the one to whom the Lord had said, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. He is altogether worthy and altogether assured to be the king who will bring all his enemies under subjection, who will rule without contest. But friend, as we look at this text, as I've already hinted, it's important for us to recognize that these men saw Christ in this light, saw him as the majestic Son, saw him as Zion's king, but they saw him in his humiliation, There was no diadem on the infant Christ. No halo and no light emanating from that home. They beheld a child who had to be nurtured by his mother Mary. Protected and provided for by his adopted father. And yet by faith they could see that he was worthy of of all praise and all honor and all glory. You see, friend, here you have a picture, don't you, of the very same kind of faith the thief on the cross exercises. You remember the thief on the cross beholds Christ as Christ is crowned but with a crown of thorns. The thief there sees Christ exalted but on a cross, not a throne. And yet, in spite of all of that, by faith, the man sees him as king, as princely redeemer, and places his faith wholly in him. Beloved, in the days of his flesh, so few saw him. But I wonder, in our own day, when we see the cause of Christ languishing, do we still see Christ as we ought? When we see the cause of Christ abandoned by so many, when we see his name derided and ridiculed, even though he's no longer in a state of humiliation, I wonder, do we have faith to see through all of that malice, to see through all of the world's hatred, And still see him in the same way that these wise men saw Christ. As altogether worthy of honor, praise, and adoration. Beloved, through Herod's malice, the world's rejection, still God's people would fall down and worship this Christ. We can be no different. The obligation is still the same. But secondly, this leads us to the reviling that Christ experienced. We're told here, of course, unsurprisingly, that in the dreams, the Lord was warning both the Magi and Joseph against Herod's murderous intentions. Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Uh, Now, beloved, before we go any further, I think again the comparison between the Magi and Herod is quite useful. You see, the Magi may not have been kings, but they were certainly great men. They were men of renown in their own time. And Herod, though he certainly was not a good king, was a man famous, a man who exercised considerable power. And yet Herod, an Edomite, who at least was under earshot of the gospel, Herod would seek to kill Christ, while these wise men who walked in darkness, whose fathers walked in darkness, whose grandfathers walked in darkness, came to worship, not to revile. The comparison, beloved, shouldn't miss us. We we should be people who are mindful that this is yet another gospel paradox. Those who should have known Christ and received him most willingly are shamed by those who are in the outer darkness for so long. But take just for a moment Herod's cause, if you like, the political cause for his malice. I think perhaps we look at a text like this and we romanticize it to such a point that, that we just imagine that, that Herod was possessed of an uncommon hatred for the Lord. The kind of thing that you find in this text is something that is so monstrous that it simply is not recapitulated in our day. But beloved, the text doesn't say anything of the sort. It tells us that Herod wanted to destroy the child, but why would Herod want to destroy Christ? You see, friend, the text doesn't even tell us that Herod believed that Christ was to come. Herod doesn't even tell us that he believed that there would be such a Messiah. But it does tell us that as soon as he heard that somebody else thought there was a Messiah. Then he sets the scribes and the Pharisees to work. Then he sets about work to destroy one who would be thought to be a contender for his throne. It was politically inexpedient for Herod that one should be called especially that one should be called by foreigners, the son of David, the one whose right to the throne was all throughout Scripture secured. It's politically inexpedient, politically hazardous for Herod to say that we would entertain such a one. Or take... Take not just Herod's Herod's malice. Take the fear that you find in Jerusalem when the wise men appear. They tremble. And you could say, well, they're trembling, of course, because they're, they're trembling, because they know what Herod will do. They know that Herod will seek to remove any, any contenders to the throne. Oh, beloved, what does that say? Well, that tells us that reasonably there is a political cause to all of this. Why am I making this point? I'm making this point because I want you to notice the kind of thing you find in this text is not so uncommon as I think we would like to believe. Both those in Jerusalem and Herod could argue that it simply was politically inexpedient to take up the cause of Christ. It didn't make sense politically. It didn't make sense at this time for Christ to come. It didn't make sense for us to press his interest at this time. It would only lead it would only lead to chaos and to confusion. What was in Herod's breast and what was in the breast of those men in the Sanhedrin? Beloved, it is no different than what you find in Stormont, Westminster, Washington, D.C. But in the text, in the text, that political inexpediency so so assumed is still malice against Christ. It is still murderous. It's still monstrous. And so what we find here is that self-serving men, self-serving men revile Christ. Herod certainly sought his own. And the apostle puts it this way, all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ's. And beloved, you see this. Even though Christ is removed from his estate of humiliation, no longer in the days of his flesh, when Christ speaks of the persecution of his cause, he comes to the persecutor and he says, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Herod can't touch Christ. The Herods of this world can't touch Christ. But this same self-serving principle can make them opponents to the cause of Christ, no less. And Christ will still judge it, an oppression of himself, when he finds it. Thirdly and finally, as we close, you see here that prophecy Out of Egypt have I called my son. Beloved, as you look at this, as we said before, here Christ enters into the likeness of the sufferings of his people. But what were these sufferings? I think it's perhaps in the 21st century difficult for us to understand how we're we're to look at a refugee. In the scriptures it's very clear though. To be in exile was to be under poverty. It was to be in shame. You read this, of course, in the scriptures. Those who were exiled, their enemies laughed over them. These exiles, as we're told here, were made an execration and an astonishment and a curse and a reproach. The sense is to be exiled in the first century and before, to be made a refugee was to take on a status that was incredibly lowly. The sense is. If you're an exile, you have been rejected by your own people. If you're a refugee, you are thus made homeless, and so you are become burdensome to whatever country you find yourself in. Beloved, this was not, this was not the kind of refugee experience that even those in Ukraine have today. There was no pity. There was no pity for the exile in the world, in the Gentile world then. It was to assume a shameful status to be made a refugee. And yet, beloved, we're told here that our Christ, just recently acknowledged to be possessed of all glory and all honor and worthy of all adoration, would take upon himself such a lowly status. That Christ would enter into the likeness of his church to come into a house of bondage and into an iron furnace, there representing all affliction, he would do so. And you see, beloved, if you look at this text in light of Hosea 11, what you find here is that Israel, the the type of Christ, the typological son, as the theologians would tell us, they enter into an affliction that the eschatological son, that is Christ himself, will experience. He will enter into the likeness of their own, of their own shame, of their own poverty, as their head, as their redeemer. You see, beloved, what this teaches us is that this likeness This act in which Christ takes upon himself the afflictions of his own was something that he encountered even in his childhood. Beloved, it was not just the man Christ, not just Christ in his majority, that was made a sympathetic high priest through affliction. But our Christ, even in his infancy, even in his minority, would enter willingly into the afflictions that his people would experience. And why is this? The writer of the Hebrews puts it to us very very famously. In all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be made a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. You see what the writer says there it behooved Christ to take upon himself such a status to undergo such an experience beloved this should this should be a text that we approach with incredible with incredible solemnity here you have our glorious Christ assuming assuming the likeness of his brethren, even to the point of being made an exile and refugee. But you see here then, beloved, is Christ as he is the commander of his people, not behind them, not dictating from a point of safety, a point untouchable, how his people should move. He emerges in this text one who is himself in the fray. He's at the front, a commander who leads, a commander who takes the fore in the battle. You find here one, the Lord of Providence, who enters into the afflictions that he would lead his own people through. As we close, beloved, there are applications that we can make. First of all, to our understanding of union with Christ. When we think of union with Christ, we think, of course, all that is his is applied to the church. But in this text, we're solemnly reminded that in union with Christ, Christ took upon himself all that was necessary for his people's redemption, even to the point of taking upon her affliction that he, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, might be made like unto his brethren, even in their affliction. This too, beloved, shows us what union with Christ is. But as you see Christ, a majestic Christ, taking upon himself such a likeness with his people, the obvious question is, does this melt away in us, that self-serving spirit? That self-serving spirit that you find in Herod, that you find, of course, in Jerusalem, But does it melt away that self-serving spirit, that self-serving spirit that would say it's wrong for us to enter into affliction? If it doesn't, beloved, this text soundly rebukes us. Christ was willing to enter into such, such difficulty for you, though he was and always would remain the Lord of glory. But secondly, does this lead you to adoration? The 11th verse shows us that kind of worship and that kind of adoration that is appropriate to Christ. Do we see ourselves ourselves rather in the 11th verse? If we do, beloved, there is something in this text that we can't miss. In one sense, we could have dwelt our entire time this morning on it. Do you see here the, de- the depth of Christ's love? I mean, think of this moment, if you will, just a bit, a bit longer. And ask yourself the question, who sent Christ into exile? The political side of us would say, well, it was certainly Herod. It was Herod's malice that sent him to Egypt. But if we're thinking theologically, we would say, of course, well, it was the Father, God the Father, who sent him. And that would be more true to the point. It was the commission and the call of God for Christ to go. But, beloved, make no mistake... It was Christ himself who was willing to go. Christ who was willing to be made a refugee. It was the second person of the Trinity who too would decree as much. It was the second person of the Trinity who is now possessed of a human nature and willing to enter into Egypt. And so, as one of our forebears notes, it is a great evidence of the love of Christ to his church that not only as her head he sympathizeth with all her troubles, but that in the days of his flesh he would in his own person assay what had been her lot, that so he might by experience know the heart of a stranger and be made a merciful and faithful high priest. Beloved, that's how we're supposed to take this text. This shows us a Christ who is willing to be made a refugee, willing to enter into the lowliness and the affliction of his people, that he might, again, in the words of the apostle, that he might be made a merciful and faithful high priest. And marvel, beloved, that this is Christ in his infancy, This is Christ in his infancy, doing this for you. The command from this text is to take Christ as he's here offered, as he is here commended, a sympathetic Savior. To understand, beloved, this, to know this Christ as he is here presented one who would enter even into the lowliness of his people to be their head and redeemer. To know this is to know the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of godliness that the apostle speaks of there. And beloved, if you do know this, your life will show how well you've learned the lesson. Are you being made like Christ in your afflictions? Are you quite willing to be made an exile for his sake? Are you quite willing to take upon yourself a pilgrim status in this life? If you are, the lesson has been well learned. Amen.